Well, good morning, and happy Resurrection Day. As we begin today, I want you to join me in a little call and response that will come up a few times today as I speak. Uh, most of you are probably already know this, but when I say the words, He is risen, and any time you hear me say that, you're going to respond with, He is risen indeed, okay? If you're joining us at home, uh, we might not be able to hear you, but I don't think that should stop us from proclaiming together the beautiful truth of this day. So why don't we try it together? You ready? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Ooh. That was, a, that, was a, that was a nice try from everyone in the audience. There's not a lot of people here, and so we've got to speak up like pretty significantly if we want to hit, feel the force of this. We're going to try it again. He is risen. Nice, nice, that's better. Thank you to the Verhain girls for boosting it there. Listen, as we dive into our message this morning, it's worth noting that today is the last day in our series from John that we've been calling The Upper Room. We've been spending the last several weeks looking at Jesus' words to his disciples in the upper room just before Jesus is arrested and then killed. Today we're going to be looking at the last chapter of that section of scripture in John chapter 17. But today is also Easter Sunday. And it just so happens that the themes of Easter and the reality of what we read in John 17 actually work together. It's almost like we planned it this way. Of course, the part that we didn't plan for, maybe just as Pastor Kirk began last week, was the part where most of us are celebrating together in our homes rather than all gathered together in this building. This wasn't the plan. But I'm excited this morning because the situation we find ourselves in today is not going to stop us from celebrating the truth of our risen Savior here today. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a fantastic opportunity to go out to Vancouver Island. I was teaching a course out there for Briarcrest as, as part of a program they run called Kaleo. I was teaching for a week on the letters of Paul, and I've got to tell you, it was amazing. After a long winter, it was just fantastic to be out there where spring is in full bloom. We drove, and so we got to see the browns of Saskatchewan fading and becoming the greens of the West Coast. And on top of that, I got to see the mountains and breathe the ocean air and open up the Bible for a week with a bunch of students and talk about Paul's letters and feel the challenge of these scriptures. And, and overall, that combination is pretty much my happy place. Well, one of the things that we talked about was... What is the central message of Paul? Often when we read Paul's letters, we, we think Paul is all about salvation by faith. Or maybe he's about justification. But one of the themes that comes up in Paul's letters over and over again, but somehow often gets overlooked, is the importance of unity. Now, of course, by this point you're probably saying, I thought we were talking about John 17, not Paul's letters. And, and that's a valid question. And, and so let me, let me make some connections here. 
as much as I find Paul's message of unity challenging, I want to suggest to you that as we open up John 17, we find a deeper challenge in the words of Jesus. And it actually comes to us as part of a prayer that Jesus prays in this section. It was read earlier in the service, Brad read it for us, but I want to read together again verses 20 to 24 of John 17. It says this, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. And as you are in me, Father, I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Again, this is Jesus praying. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Well, there are a number of things that we should notice here, but let's notice first that Jesus in this prayer is praying for us. You know, verse 20 tells us that Jesus is praying specifically for us. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. Often we want to think about the gap that exists between Scripture and our world today. Of course, these scriptures were written in a different culture and a different geography and a different time, and there's a whole world that lives in between us and the words that were written. But here we have Jesus saying, I'm praying for all of those who will believe through the message of the disciples. And that connects directly to us here in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan in 2021. And that should give us particular significance on these words. And as we think about that, let's just pause and appreciate how crazy this prayer is. Jesus is praying that we would be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. Listen, I, I spent uh, 20 hours in a van driving to the West Coast with my family. And and I tw spent 20 hours in a van driving back home. And listen, I love my wife. And I love my kids. But when I got home, I tried to find a way to get some space. And if that's true of my family, I wonder how it can be possible that Jesus might pray that we could be one as Jesus and the Father are one. First of all, how can Jesus actually expect this prayer to be answered? And secondly, and again, what does this have to do with Easter Sunday? Well, this is what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like us to figure out those two questions. And to do that, we're going to do a little bit of work. 
So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to put a couple pieces of the puzzle in place. And the first building block or the first piece of that puzzle is simply this. In the Gospel of John, we are presented with a creation story. And let me explain. We can go all the way back to the first verse of John. And if we did, we'd read these words. In the beginning was the word. And of course, when we read this, we should probably hear in the background the words of the first verses we find in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, as we move through the Gospel of John, we're going to find all kinds of creation imagery, specifically garden imagery. Even just a few weeks ago, Jeremy and Ruth Ann were up here, and they spoke about abiding in Jesus, our true vine. And, and we start to see John using this vine or garden images. It evokes for us images of a garden. Well, if the book starts with an echo of Genesis, then we should probably hear this garden imagery in the same framework with echoes of Eden in the background. And if we jump ahead a couple of chapters, we're going to read about the resurrection of Jesus in John chapter 20. Let me read this for you. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the third day, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. When we skip down to verse 11, it says, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in, and she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave, and she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said, and she turned to him and cried out, Teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go and find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. You see, Jesus was crucified. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And what do we find? We find a scene where Mary is sitting in a garden. And she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. This passage is just dripping with dramatic irony. As Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener, but we realize that he actually is the true gardener. And again, we should probably hear echoes of Genesis in the background of a God walking in the garden, having fellowship with his people. You see, the Gospel of John starts with the words of creation, 
And when Jesus rises from the dead, we are presented with a scene in a garden. I could go on, but the simple truth is that John shows us here that Jesus' resurrection is an event that mirrors God's act of creation in Genesis. And this, perhaps, is our first glimpse into how Jesus can really pray the prayer of John 17, that we would be one. You see, we know that back in the Garden of Eden, sin entered our world. And Adam and Eve's sin broke fellowship with God. And Adam and Eve experienced shame and guilt, and they hid from God, and they were kicked out of the garden. But sin also broke our fellowship with one another. The curse of sin was one that created enmity between the man and the woman. And it caused hatred and jealousy And we see that play out in the story of their children, Cain and Abel, and in the story of humanity's history ever since. But Jesus, in John 17, he prays that we might be one, as he and the Father are one. A fellowship that is not tainted by the stain of sin, but one that returns to the good and beautiful picture that God intended the fellowship of the garden? You see, Jesus can pray this prayer for our oneness because he is looking forward not only to his death on a cross, but also to the glorious reality of his resurrection. He forecasts in this prayer the reality that the curse of sin will be broken and death will no longer have any power and he will rise again and the world will be made new in him. Jesus' resurrection is an invitation into a new creation story. Listen, this is incredible news. And I think it's worth to pause and proclaim the beautiful truth of Jesus' resurrection. So if you're ready, let's try this again. He is risen. Nice. But wait. Because there's more. Because Jesus doesn't just pray for us to be one. He keeps going. Let's look at John chapter 17, verse 22. He says this, I have given them, that's us, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. Think about how incredible this is. Jesus says that the glory that he has been given is the glory that has been given to us. And and that part of our being one, this being made new, this new creation, is tied up with the idea that the, the, the idea of the glory that Jesus gave us. Well, once again, I have some questions. What does this mean? What is the glory that Jesus was given. You know, it's interesting that Jesus in the Gospel of John talks about his glory a few times. We could go back a few chapters and and look at one of those. John chapter 12, verse 23 to 24 says this. Jesus said, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. 
I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. When we read about Jesus' glory, it seems like the glory that Jesus has given is somehow tied up in his death. And, and as I said, I, I've been spending some time uh, reading in Paul's letters. And there's a really important passage in the book of Philippians that I think expresses this same idea. It's found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, and it says this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to be grasped. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's take just a minute to unpack what's happening here. And I think we could do that by continuing to think about the Genesis story and the events in the Garden of Eden. What we have in Philippians 2 is a contrast that exists between Adam and Jesus. You see, Adam in the Garden of Eden believed a lie that if he ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would be like God. But in Philippians 2, we read about Jesus who does not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In the garden, we have Adam who is formed as a man in the image of God. But what we find in Philippians 2 is we have God himself who comes to earth in the form of a man. And Adam, of course, has access to the tree of life, but chooses a path that leads to death. And Jesus, he walks towards the tree of his death in order that we might have life. You see, the glory of the Father that the Father gave to Jesus is the glory that is found on the other side of the cross. Let me say that again. The glory that Jesus was given is found on the other side of the cross. But that means that the path to his glory is one that walks through the cross. And I want to suggest to you today that if Jesus says that he is giving us the glory that he was given, then that has to mean a couple of things. The first is it means that we get to participate in Jesus' resurrection. And this is amazing. We become part of this new creation in Jesus Christ. But the second is that we do that by walking the path that Jesus walked. The one that goes through the cross. The one that lays down a life. It's the path of Jesus, not the path of Adam. And here's the deal. This path to the cross has to shape our view of what it means for us to understand Jesus' prayer 
that we would be one. How are we one? We're one because we are made new in Jesus by way of his resurrection and we share in his glory. Well, how does that happen? Because we participate with Jesus as we take up the path of Christ and lay down our lives for one another just as he laid down his life for us. And when we do this, we participate in Jesus' resurrection and we glorify God. So let me say this again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And as if that wasn't enough, when we continue looking in John 17, we find there's one more piece here that we need to discuss. Jesus goes on in his prayer in verse 23. And he says, he says this, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. That the world may know that you sent me. This is the final piece that we have today. The whole point of Jesus' prayer for unity is that God might be glorified and that the world will know him. You see, our oneness in Jesus is for the sake of the world. This is what Jesus says here. And, and it's also what he said way back at the beginning of this series. In chapter 13, the first chapter of this upper room section in John, look at what we read there in John 13. Verses 34 to 35. It says this. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love one another. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So, just like the Gospel of John is framed by these themes of creation, this section of John is framed by the theme of love for one another. And at the front and at the back, what we find is that our love for one another is a proclamation to the world. Because we are invited into the resurrection of Jesus. We are made new in him. And that newness allows us to radically love one another in a fellowship that is not tainted by sin, but is instead defined by the person of Jesus Christ. And that's a fellowship that the world doesn't know. It can't be known apart from him. And so it declares powerfully the truth of Jesus' resurrection. This is a radical oneness that actually proclaims Jesus' victory over sin and his victory over death and his victory over disease, and over hatred, and over jealousy, and over shame, and over guilt. This is the power of Jesus' resurrection. He makes us new. And so I say once again, and invite you to say with me, he is risen. He is risen indeed. So what do we do with it? Well, I think there's three things that we could consider as we conclude our time together. The, the first is this, that if 
what I'm saying, what scripture tells us is true, and we know that it is, then Jesus' resurrection actually calls us into something new. It calls us to actually take up the path of Christ, to walk the path that leads to and through the cross, and to live the resurrected life. That means that our challenge is to put aside the things that are defined by Adam, to put aside our jealousy, to lay down our shame, to put aside our anger and our guilt, that when we interact with one another, that when we, when we declare that we are one, it means that our oneness has to be fronted and defined by the person of Jesus Christ. And that in Jesus, those other things actually have to be done away with. And so the challenge of the resurrection is that we put aside the things of Adam and instead take up the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's hard work. But it's the work that we're challenged to. The, the, the second thing, the second thing that I think comes out of looking at Jesus' resurrection and his prayer for unity is that we actually have a calling to be one. And listen, we can't be together in this season. But in Jesus, we can be one. My friend Jonathan, uh, he's actually leading worship for us this morning. He told me about a tradition that his family has that I just think is so simple and beautiful. He, he, he tells me that on Easter Sunday, he and his siblings and his parents, they do something that, that used to be really normal. They pick up the phone, and they phone one another. And, and, and when they pick up the phone and they phone one another, they declare to each other exactly what we've been saying this morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's such a powerful proclamation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And, and it's such a simple phrase, but it carries so much weight. And I find myself wondering if a practical outworking of understanding the resurrection is simply to pick up the phone. And if you want to hear the challenge of the resurrection, then maybe pick up the phone and phone somebody that you haven't talked to in a while. Of course, in COVID season, that's probably lots of people. But some of us, it's been particular people for, it's been convenient to not talk to people. And, and I want to suggest to you that in the resurrection, we actually, need to put a, we actually need to put aside our inconvenience. And we need to phone and declare that in the resurrection, we are made one. And so all of those things that separate us are put aside. And maybe we could just pick up the phone and phone somebody and say, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, the third thing, and the last thing, is maybe you're watching with us today, or maybe you're here, and you actually don't know who this Jesus is that I've been talking about. You actually don't know who is this guy who thinks that we might be able to get past our hatred and our jealousy and our shame and our guilt and all of those things that break our relationships with one another. And we might actually find a oneness 
that is similar to the oneness that Jesus has with the Father? Maybe you don't know this Jesus. And if that's you today, I would love to talk with you. I would love to invite you into understanding who this Jesus is. And if you're here, please just come and talk to me. And if you're watching, maybe at home on Facebook or on the, the live stream, please contact our church. You can send an email simply to office at mjack.org. You can track us down through Facebook. Or maybe you know someone else who knows Jesus. Have a conversation with them. Because I want to tell you that in Jesus, there is a resurrection that leads to abundant life. This is good news. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the power of your resurrection. Thank you for the truth that you conquered death and you conquered sin and you are making us new. That you invite us to be one with you and one with each other. You invite us into a new creation defined not by our sin, but by your resurrection. God, would your resurrection be true in us today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.